Hi and welcome to the All Plane Podcast, where we talk with the movers and shakers that are redefining the future of commercial aviation. As usual, before we start, let me remind you once more that all previous episodes of this podcast, as well as many other aviation stories, are available on the All Plane website. That's allplane.tv. A double L P L A N E dot TV. Today we're talking about aviation sustainability and innovation, but from the perspective of venture capital, because the sort of new ideas and technologies that we often talk about here in this humble podcast are unlikely to happen unless they have access to early stage capital. So our guest today is Stephen Snyder, Managing Director of JetBlue Ventures. Set up in 2016 by the airline of the same name, JetBlue, JetBlue Ventures was one of the first venture capital firms affiliated directly with a major airline. Since then, pretty much all other large airlines and even airports and OEMs have followed suit and have now whole divisions or subsidiaries dedicated to scouting the aerospace and travel startup scene and investing in the most promising projects. JetBlue Ventures was one of the pioneers and has remained one of the major players in this space so far. In this episode, we talk with Stephen about his earlier personal entrepreneurship story and about the path that led him to lead JetBlue Ventures. We also talk about the JetBlue Ventures investment theme, so basically the ideas and trends they focus on when looking for new investment opportunities. And we also review some of the most prominent startups they have invested in. Some very well-known names in the industry, such as Jovi Aviation, Universal Hydrogen, which actually was here on the podcast, the Air Company, Flyer Labs, and many other. More generally, we also talk about how specialist venture capital firms that are closely affiliated with the industry can bring to the table some interesting expertise, know-how, and access to commercial opportunities. And this can be immensely valuable for entrepreneurs and startups alike. Last but not least, Stephen also shares some insights about what he sees as the major trends shaping the travel and aviation industries right now, and how those of you that might have interesting ideas in this field can reach out to the JetBlue Ventures investment team to pitch your ideas and potentially turn them into reality. So without further ado, let me welcome Stephen to the podcast. Hello, Stephen. How are you? Hi, Mikael. I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on. I think you're joining us from California. Uh, yeah. So it- it's morning for you. It's evening here. It's becoming kind of a, a usual thing here in this podcast, usually talking with people that are in your time zone. Uh, <laughs> we're used to this yeah, yeah. Ta- time difference. Um, I'm so- grateful for you taking me so late in the day on a Friday before you could be heading out for the weekend. Yeah. And I'm grateful for you chatting with me at nine o'clock Pacific instead of 6 a.m. Pacific sometimes, some of the calls I have to take. So thank you so much for making the time for me. No problem at all. When when you work in a as as a freelancer, uh, a freelance content <laughs> producer in a, in such a global industry, you get used to working with yeah right all time zones. Like, oh yeah. In this podcast, I've got people from from New Zealand. I've got people from mm-hmm. from different uh, places in America. So uh, it's every day is a different different time zone. I mean, <laughs> well, that's so cool. It's like you're traveling the world from behind the microphone there Pre- across all these much. different time zones. Yeah. Pretty much. What about in California are you now? I'm in San Francisco, so I feel really lucky. I just moved here a few months ago, um, but I need to settle in. I've been traveling so much. I, I'm lucky I got to see you in Amsterdam about a month ago, Mikel, at a indeed. World Aviation Festival. Yeah, and, indeed. But I've been traveling so much. I was in Finland. I was in Romania. I was in Amsterdam with you, Poland, New York a lot, Montreal a lot the last few months that... I'm excited to just have some time before the end of the year to settle in in San mm-hmm. Francisco and not be traveling for a change. 
sounds a very, very interesting uh, mm -hmm. roster of cities you've been in lately. <laughs> right. Well, just let me introduce you briefly mm -hmm. to the audience. Uh, so you are, the, you are the managing director of JetBlue Ventures, which is one of the earliest and most active VC firms in, in the aviation um, and travel space. Uh, well, let me put it this way. It's one of the earliest examples of an airline creating its own venture arm, venture investment arm. Uh, it was set up, I think, by, by JetBlue, by the, by the airline. Mm -hmm. Then other airlines have been following this example. And right now we've got a bit of a, of a boom of all sort of in-house venture arms set up by different companies in aerospace, in, in the airline industry. But I think JetBlue Ventures was one of the very first. So yeah, you're the managing director. So tell us a bit more about yourself and how you ended up yeah. in this role. Yeah. And you're right, Mikel. JetBlue Ventures was founded in 2016. I believe we were the first in the States, uh, but I think globally, Hangar 51 from IAG and Cockpit Ventures from LL might have preceded us, but all founded around the same time. And now we've seen a bunch of others um, join us in the space, which is super exciting. About myself, uh, I've been with JetBlue more broadly for about five and a half years now. I joined in May 2017, um, right after doing my business uh, master's degree. Uh, while I was getting my MBA, I had a crazy idea to start a business in the airport retail space. We we're trying to do barber shops and airports. Wow. So we were called, yeah. I could give you the whole pitch. Uh, I still have it <laughs> memorized pretty much. You have a lot of male business travelers who need to look good when they're on the road, but they don't know a good place to do it and they don't have the time when they're at home, so on and so forth. And I can give you that whole shtick, but I'll, I'll spare you today. Um, we were called air cuts. So a play on words instead of haircuts, air cuts. Uh, if it wasn't that, it would have been American Airlines or it would have been the airport or the hair mall. <laughs> and there were a lot of really bad dad jokes uh, in there. Um, but it was that experience of trying to start a business in this space that was really educational for me. I made sure that my curriculum and the classroom uh, education that I was getting at school was 100% oriented around entrepreneurship and venture capital, and also, randomly enough, um, airlines and aerospace systems, because uh, the university that I was at at the time, uh, University of Pennsylvania, has a really wonderful engineering school and a really wonderful design school. So I was able to take classes that were cross-listed in that. And just really use my time uh, in the master's program to get educated on airlines and get educated on startups and VC and entrepreneurship. I, as soon as I graduated from my master's program, I joined JetBlue in the corporate strategy team. Uh, I had that role for three and a half years. It was a really interesting cross-functional role where I helped manage budgets and IT resources and uh, executive leadership priorities. And how do we align all of those competing forces against each other? So I did that for three and a half years. And through that process, I got to know a little bit about a lot of things. I got to know, oh, there's this project going on in tech ops about how do we modernize our inventory tracking system? Or there's this project going on in loyalty about how do we deliver better rewards to our customers? Or this project going on in the customer uh, support in the call center uh, about making sure we all have the right information when we're greeting a customer over the phone. So I, I like to say that I knew a little bit about a lot of things. Uh, which was really natural for uh, a role that they were looking to fill at JetBlue Ventures. So I had originally joined the JetBlue Ventures team about two years ago as the operating principal. And in that capacity, my job was to, um, to help forward the interests of the companies that we have invested in, 
um, help align them to where there's a good innovation use case within JetBlue, really understand the different needs of the different business units. So that built very naturally upon the prior job that I had where I knew a little bit about everything and I knew which doors to knock on and how to get responses for things. I did that for a year and then I was really fortunate that the managing director role opened up and I was able to step into that. Um, so in total, it's been five and a half years with JetBlue, the last two adventures, and every day has been such an education. And I've, I've learned so much um, in the travel, VC, and startup space uh, over that time. Wow, pretty impressive. And may I ask what happened with that retail venture? You know, I feel very lucky that it did not go forward. I think I learned that there are very high barriers to entry in the airport um, retail space. And while mm -hmm. I do see some insurgents trying to break in, um, it's hard to get there. I did not want to have to personally collateralize any loans, personally guarantee anything. I feel very lucky that it was 2017, you know, 15, 16, 17, that I was building this idea. I had no way of knowing that COVID was coming. And with COVID, it meant that airport retail took a big hit. And especially something like um, something that is that up close and personal is getting your hair cut. I think people were very reluctant to do for big parts of the pandemic. So I would have really uh, it'd been hit very hard. So I'm very relieved that it didn't mm -hmm. work out. Sometimes, sometimes the entrepreneurs get very frustrated when something uh, doesn't go their way and they can't uh, complete their startup. But sometimes it's a blessing in disguise and you don't know that at the time. Indeed. Yeah. That, actually, that's pretty much what came to my mind when you mentioned it. I mean, I, I think it, it sounds like a terrific idea, but yeah, the, the airport environment sounds quite yeah. challenging for a, for a, yeah. start, for a startup. <laughs> but yeah, must... you don't get the same returns too. It's not venture backable, but yes, Mikel. No, I, I was about to say that um, mm -hmm. actually that reminded me that I flew Virgin Atlantic on, mm -hmm. I think they call it the upper class, the the, which is, a, is their business class. Yep. And I don't know if they still have it, but they used to offer haircuts at the yep. lounge. In the lounge. I was working for Bloomberg at the time. And the point that everyone was mentioning was that there were these haircuts at the lounge. So that's something mm -hmm. that was mm -hmm. really sticking yeah. in the mind of people. Yeah. Like they didn't mention the food or the drinks mm -hmm. or the, or, or the, mm -hmm. the, the yeah. armchair or whatever. Yeah. They, everyone mentioned, oh, you know, they have haircuts. You can have your haircut mm -hmm. at the lounge. <laughs> I could speak for hours about haircuts and barbershops and the new kind of elevated experience that I think a lot of men are looking for today. But that would turn this into a different podcast. Um, so we'll save that for, yeah. for when we do our spinoff to do the male beauty um, <laughs> podcast in the future. Yeah, that's a, that, that would be a great idea as well. <laughs> do that as a follow-up. Absolutely. Yeah. So you're now at JetBlue Ventures, mm -hmm. and I, I wanted to ask you a bit about, about JetBlue Ventures, because mm -hmm. yeah. as I said earlier, I think it's it's one of the most active firms in this space. You obviously, you are linked to JetBlue, but what's the relationship mm -hmm. with the airline? Mm -hmm. Is it still part of the JetBlue group, or you have other investors yeah. at the moment? What sort of relation is there? Mm -hmm. And that's important also because, as you mentioned as well, it seems that there is some element there that uh, when an entrepreneur comes to you, a startup comes mm -hmm. to you, there's a bit of expectation that if the product or solution that they offer is successful and it's feasible, mm -hmm. JetBlue itself might be mm -hmm. kind of like the, the launch customer for, mm -hmm. for that idea. Sure. Yeah. So to answer the, the kind of specifics, uh, JetBlue is uh, the sole investor in JetBlue Ventures. There is no outside money. We're the wholly owned venture capital subsidiary. And, you know, that definitely has an impact on, yes, JetBlue cares a lot about financial returns. 
that come from this. And, you know, although we don't disclose this externally, we're very proud of the return that we have brought back to JetBlue. And we we carry above our weight in terms of what we do on the financial side. Um, but it also heightens the importance of the strategic relevance of the companies that we invest in. Ideally, these are companies that we could see JetBlue using at some point in the future, and a very large percentage of the companies that we have invested in, if we have not at least had initial conversations with JetBlue, or we've not used them to educate JetBlue and to change their thought process on a new emerging field of technology, uh, maybe it's gone even further and they're actually using it and they've got an offtake agreement or they are using the, uh, you know, for example, Tomorrow.io is a company that we invested in that has hyper-local, hyper-real-time weather forecasting better than a lot of the incumbents. We were really excited that they just won a major contract with uh, JetBlue's uh, system operations center that's going to be using them as the official meteorologist of JetBlue. So we're very excited about that. And that is a desired outcome of the investments that we do. That's why we are strategic investors. And that's a lot of the strategic value that we're able to offer startups. You know, yes, we've got the backing of a really strong, smart 13-person venture capital team in Silicon Valley in New York to really get to know the business well. But we also have the backing of 23,000 crew members at JetBlue of about 45 million customers during a normal year. We'll have to update that number, you know, once we get back to whatever normal looks like in the future. But um, a huge amount of customers, a huge amount of crew members flying to over 100 cities in North America, Latin America, the Caribbean, and Europe as well. So, you know, it can really, we can take a technology and we can put it in the hands of people that can give it really wonderful feedback and development and coaching. If we are looking to do something related to engine maintenance, We've got dozens of experts on, a, on engine maintenance who can be providing very good, um, very tactical feedback to the startups and coaching them to evolve. So I like to say when it comes to investment and uh, venture capital, you know, money is money. Um, if I give you $10 or if um, a major institutional like Sequoia or Bessemer or General Catalyst or Andreessen Horowitz, if they give you $10, those $10 are the same. You can take it to the store, you can spend it on this thing or that thing. But where we really make that $10 go a lot further is that strategic insight that we have as people who understand the travel, hospitality, airline, aerospace, et cetera, um, fields incredibly well. That's the additional value that we give to our portfolio companies. Mm -hmm. Because I, I would like to highlight that your investments mm -hmm. are not, strictly speaking, in airline-related stuff. Mm -hmm. You uh, yeah. invest in, in, the, in the broader travel technology theme. Uh, mm -hmm. So it, it could be software that helps travelers get mm -hmm. a better experience or sure. uh, help companies in the travel space optimize mm -hmm. their revenue, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. So yeah. uh, what's your investment criteria? I mean, up to which degree a company needs to be linked to the travel industry mm -hmm. and how you define the travel industry? Yeah, that's a great question. So we invest across five different themes. So the seamless customer journey. So anything that can help remove friction in the process for customers, whether it's getting from the curb to the gate more smoothly or finding a quicker way to book your trip, that's a seamless customer journey for us. And we want to make sure that we are reducing any points of friction. Reimagining the accommodation experience is the second one. 
So accommodations, wait a second, that's got nothing to do with airlines, right? That would be the first reaction. But JetBlue has another subsidiary called JetBlue Travel Products that is everything that is non-air ancillaries from insurance to rental cars, to um, hotels, to short-term rentals, to cruises, to tours and activities. And we just, we took a look at an Airbnb, for example, five to 10 years ago, and how much that radically changed the travel industry. And we thought, well, there are a lot of other players in this space, whether they're direct competitors to Airbnb or ones that are doing things a little differently, or ones that are playing in different parts of the value chain for accommodations. And we said, this looks like a really exciting space for us. I would also say from the airlines perspective, it's higher margin than simple flights are a lot of the products that they sell. So uh, that was a place where we really wanted to support JetBlue's corporate strategy and move deeper in that direction. Uh, the three others, you know, I can touch on a couple of them quickly and could probably have a whole yeah. uh, day set aside for the last one here. So next-gen aviation operations and enterprise tech, that's a lot of things that are back of house that customers would not look at, touch, or recognize, but are super important uh, in running an airline. Uh, innovation and loyalty, distribution and revenue. So anything that's driving the top line, anything that's bringing more uh, revenue into the business and how we can be supporting that. We've got some really wonderful startups in that space. And last, and I think you know, most important to us is sustainable travel. The CEO of JetBlue, Robin Hayes, uh, served as the chair of IATA for uh, the last two years. His term recently expired. And I, I think he wanted to really use that time and say, hey, us as airlines, we've got a very important obligation here to lead on decarbonization and to we can make a, a, a tremendous impact for the planet if we do so. Uh, so he did a really wonderful job of kind of orchestrating the entire global uh, aviation industry to make this a number one priority for the whole industry. And I think that's why you see so much of the momentum there. So we thought about how can we play our role on this? We've got a number of uh, companies in our portfolio, I'd say about five to 10 of the 41 that we have invested in either have uh, sustainability as their number one mission or their number two mission in terms of what they do. We were really honored Lufthansa Innovation Hub, which I think is one of the best chroniclers of all the exciting innovation work that's going on globally. Uh, they did a, a research article back in May, I believe for Earth Month that had a, either April or May of 2022. And they had said that they ranked all the airlines in the world based on the number of investments that they've made in sustainability. And we were number one in that ranking. Little JetBlue, you know, the number six player yeah. <laughs> in the United States that maybe not everybody knows about globally. Um, we were the top from uh, environmental, environmentally sensitive, sustainable-minded mm -hmm. um, investments. And they came out with that ranking at the beginning of Earth Month before we announced two subsequent investments over the course of Earth Month. So we went even further into the lead and it's super important to us to do it, to do it right, um, to do it in a meaningful, substantive way, to avoid greenwashing. Uh, and we're really proud of the numerous investments that we've done in sustainability. Yeah, indeed. Um, quite a few names in your portfolio that are companies that I've been following for a while. And actually, mm -hmm. one of them mm -hmm. has been in the podcast mm -hmm. before, Universal Hydrogen. Uh, yeah. Developing an uh, uh, interesting system of, mm -hmm. of capsules mm -hmm. for aircraft to power mm -hmm. them with hydrogen, but also some other mm -hmm. companies that are, are becoming quite quite well known. I think even outside the mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. relatively still small circle of sustainable aviation, yeah, like jo Joey Aviation, for example. Joey is wonderful. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, Joey Aviation doing EV tolls, and and then mm -hmm. some others that might not be so well known by the general public, mm -hmm. but actually, yeah, I, I kind of admire as well, like Flyer, which is a yeah. is a company uh, in software 
software company that's been yeah. growing, uh, been growing massively. And they actually mm -hmm. acquired, they recently acquired a company I had been collaborating with in the past. So, <laughs> so it's a, mm -hmm. it's a small yeah. one. Um, yeah. Volantio, which is another company yeah. that operates in the, in the software space. Air Company, which is mm -hmm. uh, yeah. also developing some interesting new solutions. So, yeah. so yeah. Quite... Air Company is wonderful. I, and mm -hmm. I appreciate it. all of these are really wonderful. And I could speak about each of them for 20 minutes. But I think something that's really cool about Air Company, so they are a direct carbon capture uh, yeah. company. So, you know, they're trying to find a second life for uh, carbon that's already been used. Yeah. And um, I, I think one of the things that's really ingenious about them is how they pivoted over the course of the pandemic. While sustainable aviation fuel is one of their primary use cases and something that they had been spending a lot of time developing, but they had kept hush-hush until uh, Climate Week in New York this past September, we knew they were headed in that direction. They thought during the pandemic, Okay, well, what are other things that we can do with distilled alcohols to begin getting some revenue, to begin getting some customer feedback, to begin getting some buzz, to help actually prove the, uh, you know, the chemical process that they use to manufacture their distilled alcohols. So what did everybody need, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, hand sanitizer, so they began producing that, they began producing perfumes, and they also began producing vodka out of carbon. So it's the world's first carbon negative vodka. I'm not a big vodka drinker, but it tastes very nice and smooth. And it doesn't it, it doesn't have all the bad associations that I usually mm -hmm. um, bring to vodka. And what I just think is so cool about it is sustainability and travel feels like a very abstract concept for a lot of people. In JetBlue, we offset all of our uh, domestic flights and all of our transatlantic flights. It's even included in the uh, the public address briefing that our in-flight crew members deliver that today's flight is carbon neutral and that we're very proud of that. Sorry, just one, one if I may interrupt you here one yeah. second. When you say you Please. offset all the flights, you refer to the yep. flights that you do internally as, as members of staff or all flights, like all... Yeah, so JetBlue... Yeah, JetBlue offsets the carbon emissions of all domestic flights and mm. all transatlantic flights as well, okay. uh, and has really been a leader on that. But I think when we explain that to customers, I think there's always a challenge on customer literacy for uh, sustainability. What does What is a carbon offset? What is a carbon credit? I don't know what that means. It sounds like it's expensive, and I just want to keep my ticket price down. We totally understand that, and we, we totally understand how um, abstract that might seem. But bringing it back to Air Company here, you know, I know that people are willing to go out of their way and pay more money to pay for cage-free eggs or bio milk or organic this or sustainably raised that. People care and people express their preferences through that. So when you have a carbon negative vodka, for example, we think this is the sort of thing that is an, an elevated premium brand experience, um, takes sustainability and makes it real for people, makes it tangible, something that they can make a, a purchasing decision that aligns with their values. Um, so we love that. And, you know, we want to find ways to get airlines to start serving this on board as well, because we think that would be a fun um, drink to have that you could have a, a vodka teeny um, in the sky and be reducing your carbon footprint while you do it. We think that's really exciting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I knew they, they were producing all sorts of products. I hadn't heard about the vodka one, but, but, but that's yeah. Uh, yeah, really they call cool. It the Air teeny. They call okay. it the Air teeny <laughs> is the name of the cocktail that we really love. Okay. Well, I, I hope the, uh, the production lines of vodka and the sustainable aviation fuel. <laughs> 
kept a bit separate so that they yes exactly end up mixed exactly. up exactly don't give <laughs> don't give either of them to the pilots don't let them drink uh the fuel or the uh the vodka Mm-hmm. So yeah, you've you've got all these amazing portfolio. I think uh, some forty something investments to date, or something like that. I don't know if that's an up to date forty uh, one number. Forty one, forty one investments yeah. at yeah. present of investments that are where where you are you are actively invested in. Mm-hmm. And how does JetBlue Ventures fit into the overall VC landscape? I mean, you guys, mm-hmm. you're you're in the Bay Area, which is like the the, the VC capital mm-hmm. of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. I'm not too familiar with the how the the VC world uh, works. Mm-hmm. Um, For sure. How you compare to, a, let's say, a, a generalist VC? Well, mm-hmm. maybe not generalist, yeah. but a, a VC mm-hmm. firm that, that is not is not linked to a specific sector mm-hmm. or a specific industry yeah. player, like like in your case. Yeah. I don't know if that, are there any significant differences, sure. and and also for yeah. startups that are considering applying. I I don't know if mm-hmm. from the uh, yeah. startup side there's any difference aside from well, obviously there is. We're talking earlier about this strategic element but in the mm-hmm. way you work in the way you deal with these entrepreneurs what yeah. what what what's the difference or what are the similarities yeah absolutely the way that we break it up is we think about the institutional vcs and those are your major names like andreessen horowitz and general catalyst and nea and bessemer and sequoia and i don't mm-hmm. want to leave anybody out because these are all such legendary firms that Sometimes we've been fortunate to do some co-investments with Insight Partners is another one that I would throw out there and that we've done some deals with. So there there are a lot of really wonderful um, institutional VCs. And the real value that they bring to the table is they've got wonderful networks when it comes to technology and when it comes to finance um, and really great skills when it comes to coaching entrepreneurs and really wonderful networks. I think also to differentiate them from strategic VCs, They have very, very deep pockets. We have deep pockets. We can help uh, write checks for uh, for our entrepreneurs and for prospective entrepreneurs. But we're probably not as uh, you know. We don't have billion dollar funds, multi billion dollar funds, the way that these institutionals do. I wanted to ask you about this. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that well, it's it's a bit private, but you do. But I don't know if there's any. Uh, are there any public uh, numbers about this? I don't know if you manage one fund or several funds. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's any public number mm-hmm. that you. Can Can mention as to the size of the funds and mm-hmm. the average ticket that you invest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I can speak to the average ticket. Um, you know, we we tend to say that uh, our sweet spot is a late seed stage or a Series A stage company. I would say the middle ninety percent of the checks that we write are probably somewhere between five hundred thousand to three million dollars. We tend not to lead rounds. You know, I, those those are very rough estimates. I don't I don't have exact numbers in front of me. But you know, when people come to a strategic, they do so because There is certain industry expertise that we have, or there's certain brand name that we have, or an ability to help develop sales for our portfolio companies after an investment has taken place. That while many of the institutionals will have certain practices that are oriented around certain technologies, for us, we like to do what we do well and not get too distracted by other things that we don't know what we can add value to. So a constant conversation that we have is whether something is within our investment scope or within our investment mandate or not versus many institutionals. The question is, okay, is it going to meet our financial benchmarks? That's the number one thing that they Mm -hmm. think about. I think we balance is something going to have a strong financial case 
uh, with it to, is it going to have a strong strategic case? The test that I would apply to it is if the CEO of JetBlue, who's very plugged in and knows a lot about our investments, if he was to get a random question about one of our portfolio companies during a uh, company town hall or during an earnings call from investors or at a conference, if somebody was to give him a curveball question in front of a large audience, could he explain the company that we have invested in? <laughs> Is it going to be something that's intelligible for an airline audience and for an airline executive to be able to speak to credibly? That's what I like to think about of the test of how far does our scope go. If I understand, you, you said you are not leading the round. So I imagine you, uh, very often you co-invest with uh, some of those. Absolutely companies you mentioned. How is the relation as far as the, let's say, the traditional VC firms are concerned? What about yeah. the what about the other airline-linked VC yeah. firms? Uh, do you also yeah. work together or you see other airline-linked VC firms as competitors yeah. in some way chasing the same, the same type of deals? It's always a careful balance, but I think what's distinct about the venture industry is deals only get better um, when you get more perspectives on them, when you bring others who can add strategic value. If we have invested in a company that would really serve well by having strong commercial relationships with other airlines, we're really pleased to make an introduction to the venture group because that's getting money to come back to JetBlue and a hedge against their traditional business lines in a really clever way. Yeah, there is some competition from time to time, but I don't think that anyone would ever say, no, we are opposed to doing a deal because somebody else is in it. It's another source of capital. We never have exclusivity when, once we have invested in a company, whether it is exclusivity of other investors that are in a similar space or, you know, take tomorrow.io, for example, that I was talking about from a weather forecasting perspective. They've done sales with Delta. They've done sales with other world major airlines. And that's wonderful because that's more revenue that can come back to JetBlue at the end of the day. So we're not we're not afraid of that. I think it's good too, because sometimes um, JetBlue has its own reasons for being able to move forward with a commercial contract or not move forward. So it's a good way to hedge against multiple business strategies there. Um, so we're not territorial. We think that's a good thing for the businesses that we've invested in to collaborate with multiple airlines. And how's the process like to basically get invested by you? If I, if I was a, an, mm -hmm. a travel entrepreneur, yeah, what should they do? Just cold contact you, yeah. or you, or there are some specific paths uh, for mm -hmm. people to, yeah. to reach out to you. Ah, and very important, do you invest only in U.S.-based companies, or mm -hmm. your scope is more yeah. global? Let's say. Well, let's start with the with the geography. Mm -hmm. So, to answer your question, we invest in companies from around the world. I can think of at least two that are based in Canada, one that's in Ireland, at least one, if not two or three, that are based in the United Kingdom. Um, some that uh, one that's based in Spain. There's one, or there are multiple of them that have roots in Israel, or you know, are Israeli founders that are now settled in North America. So. Absolutely. We love finding ones from all over the planet and working with them, whether there's a geographic overlap or not. Ideally, that technology can be used in North America and Latin America and Europe where JetBlue's uh, business presence is um, most significantly. So that's not an opposition uh, to us. In terms of the process, yeah, 
you know, cold inbounds are actually a really wonderful source of introductions for us and we welcome them. I invite anybody who's listening to send an email just to introduce yourself to crew, C-R-E-W at JetBlueVentures.com, all one word. Um, And that way we can get to our pipeline and we can assign somebody from the investment team to begin taking a look at it. And uh, hopefully if it continues to go further to help bring it to my team that helps to interface with JetBlue and uh, put some of that strategic expertise and uh, tire kicking into it. We see on average somewhere between 1,000 and 1,400 new startups a year. So it's a very competitive process. To, you know, So if you extrapolate that, I believe it's 9,000 to 10,000 that we've seen throughout our history. Wow. And we've only invested in 41. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's a very arduous process, but you have to... Bonnie Simi, who is the founding president of, of JetBlue Ventures, and is now with Joby, one of our portfolio companies. Mm-hmm. She likes to say you have to buy a ticket if you want to win the lottery. So yep. we encourage people to get in touch, even if it does not spell at the end of this that we're going to write a check. We hope that we can deliver strategic insights uh, to your business. We hope that we can make warm introductions to other mm-hmm. investors. Uh, and just that a, a conversation could be educational for both sides. So we encourage people to reach out. Mm-hmm. You mentioned these four different themes you invest in. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have seen some, let's say, some evolution in the mm-hmm. in the topics or the investment yeah. themes that interest the, let's say, the airline and travel VC community, it's particularly this last couple of years that we've got this mm-hmm. pandemic that yeah. might have been a bit transformational, maybe not as much as many people expected, mm-hmm. but obviously mm-hmm. has uh, yeah. had a big impact in the industry. Uh, so just in short, what's hot now in general? And yeah. are there any specific major trends that you have uh, identified in this space, mm-hmm. in the investment space? So I think something that is always hot is just having a technology that is adaptable to multiple use cases. I think during the pandemic, a lot of people got laser focused on contactless solutions and de- you know decontamination and cleanliness and things of that nature. I think what the longer term uh, takeaway from that is, okay, well, maybe something is set up to be touchless, but it's really about customer self-service. And really, there are other ways to use this. And it's not just about spraying away germs, um, but it is about finding ways to reduce touch points between customers and crew members. Um, Or if it's about document verification, uh, it's not just about COVID certificates and COVID tests, but it's really about how do we expedite paper heavy processes and find other ways to to move through borders more quickly. So I think if you have a very good backbone to your product that's adaptable to multiple use cases, that is a more durable business model. So it's obviously good to have these solutions that are versatile, that can be used in in different situations. And obviously you invest a lot in companies that are basically supporting the travel industry, providing all these, mm-hmm. uh, let's say, optimization tools, um, making the the customer, the passenger journey more seamless. Mm-hmm. I, I also wanted to ask you about, let's say, the the future of, of air travel in general, mm-hmm. the, the future mm-hmm. of the future of mobility in, in a mm-hmm. way, because as you know, we have on one side all these climate concerns, whether we're traveling mm-hmm. too much, all of that. Then we have all these new exciting projects that are basically aiming to decarbonize aviation mm-hmm. and yeah i mean there are different differing views here 
we've mm-hmm. got some people in the podcast that were very critical of uh, mm-hmm. some of these projects in particularly the, those that are in principle more let's say more disruptive things mm-hmm. well disruptive technologies that are not as proven uh, like mm-hmm. things like ev tolls or, or hydrogen that require a complete change in in, in mm-hmm. paradigm in the, in the industry mm-hmm. um, so I just wanted to ask you about this how mm-hmm. you guys see the future of air travel how you see people moving mm-hmm. around in the future I yeah. know it's a very broad question and there are many many factors in here but uh, mm-hmm. and from the micro level because some projects like the ones you're investing in actually are very yeah. about local mobility even if it's by sure. air and some others are more designed for longer distances mm-hmm. but just trying to make sense of all this I mean how all these different yeah. modes of transportation, all these different technologies, all these all these different yeah. ways to fuel mobility are going to yeah. work together? Yeah, that's a great question, Mikel. And I think we have invested in companies that don't have to do with air transportation necessarily. We invested in a company called Better Res, which is kind of a, an OTA and a distribution platform for bus sales, which are it's not as big in the States as it is in Europe to, to have multimodality like that. Similarly, we invested, uh, they were just acquired actually, Better Res by a company called BusBud. So we're always very excited when one of our investments gets acquired because it's a a big validation. We invested in another company called Mozio that is really about multimodality. And I show up in a new city and I don't know the transportation options that I have there, whether it's uh, using TNC, so app-based ride hailing apps like Lyft and Uber or um, public transportation. And how do I find my tickets for that? Uh, And they do a really wonderful job with uh, making that easier for consumers as they arrive in a new place. So we've definitely hedged our bets in multiple places there and not only focused on air related solutions. But I think, look, I'm a huge mobility advocate, uh, alternative transportation. Um, I don't own a car. I think that's a big um, value alignment thing for me. I don't ever see myself owning a car because I think about the environmental impact of owning an automobile. And I don't think that aligns with my core values. And so I hope to uh, you know, support the leadership of JetBlue Ventures with a bit of that mentality. But at the same time, I think you need to meet people where they're at. And we're very attentive to the flight shame movement uh, in Europe. And it's something that I've mentioned JetBlue CEO Robin Hayes a couple of times now. It's something that he was talking about back in 2019. And when Greta Thunberg was beginning to get big global attention around flight shaming, we take that very seriously. And at the same time, we recognize that in the United States, you don't have as many secondary and tertiary options if you're not going to take an automobile, if you're not going to take a flight in whatever context that you're in. It is not the robust rail networks of Europe. It is not the robust public transportation networks. And there's something that's just uh, geographically different about the United States that other than the Northeast United States, you don't have dense walkable cities with great public transportation that are connected very well to each other. If you're between Boston, Massachusetts and Washington, D.C., yes, you can get between cities wonderfully with uh, rail service. But for most of the country, you don't have that option. Um, so if you need to get from Detroit to Arizona, you have to take a flight or you, you either take a flight or you drive a car for three days to yeah. get between those two cities because it's so spread apart. So we know that air transportation and cleaner air transportation has to play a role in that because people are not going to simply stop traveling between these cities 
There's so much business interest between many of these cities in the States, family interests that are still going to connect these places. So air transportation is not going anywhere. I think we need to be pragmatic and say, how do we make air transportation cleaner through sustainable aviation fuel, through uh, alternative aircraft uh, types, and not just ignore the decarbonization challenges of uh, of airlines, we actually have to work very hands on to uh, to address the decarbonization challenges in airlines. Yeah, we need to to work to make it cleaner, not just to just mm -hmm. give up on traveling because there there are mm -hmm. there are so many positive effects from traveling mm -hmm. uh, on mm -hmm. a personal business level. Oh yeah. Um, but when talking about this decarbonization, I don't know if you mm -hmm. guys do you have some favorites here in terms mm -hmm. of the technologies that are gonna mm -hmm. prevail. Uh, because we have mm -hmm. people trying different things. I mean, the challenge is so so large that you have people trying mm -hmm. all, all different sorts of things uh, mm -hmm. from sustainable aviation fuels. You have yeah. uh, hydrogen electric. Yeah. Uh, I mean, from your portfolio, I can see mm -hmm. you've got a, a few of each. But I don't know if mm -hmm. there, there is a, uh, let's say, institutional yeah. view uh, about yeah. what, what what's more likely to succeed here in the long yeah. term. Well, I would say the view is the work of venture capital is to look on a medium to long-term time horizon and to imagine what might be possible in five years, 10 years, 15 years, et cetera, and to really spread bets across all of that. I'm very confident in all of these areas that we're um, headed towards sustainable aviation fuel. I think maybe the one challenge of that is going to be how do you scale? Um, something like sustainable aviation fuel, is it going to require large production facilities? And is there going to be the capital that helps to drive that, which I'll come back to in a second, you know, different aircraft types, whether it's electric, electric hybrid, hydrogen uh, propulsion, eVTOLs, we really have to be looking at all of those, um, because it's too early to know, and they each have their own supply chain and infrastructure that's going to be required for it, that we need to be building these all out simultaneously. So I said on, um, on sustainable aviation fuel, it's a very asset heavy approach. But I think you and I are chatting at a very interesting time in technology and venture capital that we are seeing in real time in these last few weeks, the deflation of the Web3 bubble and of very speculative asset classes of cryptocurrencies, of NFTs. Of, and, you know, there could be some good technology that's underwriting that, but we're going through the hype cycle right now and we're seeing in real time it, it coming down a bit. I, I know in the last five to 10 years, the emphasis has been on asset light businesses because they're quicker to scale and they've got better multiples. But asset, you know, by the very definition of the word, I did not pay very close attention when I did accounting class, when I did my business master's, but I think I remember that the term asset means value. It means <laughs> that it is something of value and yeah. that it is recognized on your books as a bit as a business, as a as a representation, as a source of value. So even though sustainable aviation fuel is going to require a significant asset base in order to be able to scale it up. I would encourage people to not be so scared of that um, and that we do need to be working together. Let's find a way to make it asset efficient, but let's not get too scared away just because it's going to require significant assets um, mm -hmm. to build this out. Yeah, actually, I wanted to ask you about that because it seems that many of your investments are in 
let's say software software related technology a software or more mm -hmm. like intangible but you mm -hmm. also have a few that are actually physical tangible uh, har yeah. tangible hardware yeah uh joby air company i guess they also mm -hmm. have uh, For sure. uh some equipment there drinkable yeah <laughs> universal <laughs> hydrogen yes. Uh, yeah. I don't know if is there any let's say any rule or any principle yeah. that makes you decide or let me put it this way are you more let's say leaning towards uh, software asset light mm -hmm. investments mm -hmm. or there is no actually no preference it could be could be any mm -hmm. I mean it could be you do hardware as well it's, I mean if someone has yeah. an idea I, I don't know mm -hmm. they want to create a new mm -hmm. new type yeah. of aircraft or something like that they can come to you mm -hmm. as well we we welcome all ideas it does not mm -hmm. have to be either or what i would say though is it should be the right technology for the right use case mm -hmm. um so if the problem that we are trying to solve here is how do we use ai and ml to do a more efficient job of forecasting revenue and demands and um you know these are things that two SaaS companies and maybe three SaaS companies they could point to in our portfolio. Volantio, Flyer, and Three Victors do a really wonderful job of doing. But the but software is the right solution for that. And if you're talking about how do we decrease the carbon burn of uh, of our aircraft, there are both software solutions for it. I think of you know better navigational technology and routing technology as, as some companies in our portfolio, Beacon is one that comes to mind, do a really fantastic job of from a software perspective, but they have to be complemented by really wonderful hardware too in the form of universal hydrogen or um, uh, durable goods in the form of air companies. So I don't think that it's an either or, but I think it is a question of the right technology for the right use case. Excellent. Well, I think that's uh, the, the perfect point to basically yeah. wrap up today's episode. Yeah. And I would like to thank you very much for yeah. for your time today. I know you're, you're a busy man with all these uh, portfolio of 41 companies. Yeah. And you said about a thousand per year that you have to review. So, <laughs> yeah. well, you and your team. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so I get an oh, idea yeah. of how busy it can get. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. And yeah, I will post links uh, on the show Hopefully. notes so that people can, can follow up and, and can check your portfolio yeah. and all the these yeah. different startups you have in there and, Absolutely. and so yeah. follow us on twitter sign up for our news if twitter is still here follow yeah. us on twitter um sign up for our newsletter uh add us on linkedin we look forward to having conversations with really bright entrepreneurs and others who are in the travel ecosystem so please be in touch excellent and thank you Mikel, for your time a pleasure thank you so much bye all right thank you Mikel. before you go and if you like this podcast a quick reminder that it would be absolutely great if you could please give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you are using, or recommend it to a friend or whomever might be interested. Thank you very much, and see you soon.